Good morning, Third Street. How you guys feeling? A lot, a lot less sure now that you've seen that bumper video, huh? You said I was feeling good, but there's some things in there that I had noticed, and now I'm really anxious to see where this goes. Well, good news is that this morning we get to start a brand new series. Does anybody else get as excited as I do to start new stuff, right, for new seasons, for change, for, like, new things to come around? Well, if you are like me, then today is for you, right? Because today marks a brand new series titled The Book of Joseph. By a show of hands, how many of you in here can tell me precisely in Scripture where the book of Joseph lies? I lead a biblically illiterate church. None of you can tell me? Ah, it's it's what? It's not in there, she says. No way. Somebody, somebody prove her wrong. Somebody pull it up right now. You can't? Oh, well then what the heck are we talking about for the next four or five weeks? Oh, have I piqued your interest? But wait, there's more. For the next few weeks, we're in this series called The Book of Joseph. It's a phrase... Uh, Pastor Kenny first started using um, a few years ago and that we often joke about now. Um, we'll say that's in the book of Joseph. When, when we're talking about the things that people say like they're in Scripture, but they're not in Scripture, right? You know the ones I'm talking about. Cleanliness is next to godliness, Kids who grew up with Christian parents, can I ruin something for you? This whole time, that was never in Scripture. They lied to you. They quoted it like it was, but all they wanted you to do is clean your nasty room. You stinky teenager. That's all they wanted, right? We're talking about the things that people believe and act on like they're in Scripture. But the reality is, they're nowhere to be found. For the next few weeks, we'll hear from a few different voices as we explore things that maybe our whole lives we've just kind of operated under. Talk about where these things come from, why we believe these things, but also in the spirit of correcting a few common misbeliefs we're going to get to what we need to know instead. What God would have us know about this false pretense we may or may not be under. And I get it. These things are everywhere. Anywhere with an Instagram account can easily recognize people who, you know, we, we've all seen it. We've all seen the people who put up scripture in their story or on the graphic or whatever. And how often do we really cross-reference that that scripture is actually there? We've all been susceptible. We've all jumped into it. And so, and in as much as it is possible when talking about false teachings, we want to have some fun this, in this series. We want to joke and laugh because we've all been there. We've all been guilty of it. But the ultimate goal, Holy Spirit, the ultimate goal is getting us to a point where we're able to recognize 
misbeliefs. Not because we're judging the person who says them, but because we know Christ so well that immediately we recognize what does and does not come from his voice. Amen? So this morning as I set the scene for our series, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be in the second chapter. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, if you care to join me in that translation. If you don't have your physical Bibles with you, then maybe at some point it'll be up on the screen. There we go. You can follow along right there, or you can just listen as I give you a faithful reading. This is the book of Colossians, chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Scripture says this, In him, meaning Jesus, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I, Paul, may be absent in the body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. My dad loves chocolate. Loves chocolate. Right? Loves it. I, on numerous occasions, have seen my father willing to die over some chocolate. Because he's diabetic. And he doesn't care. He's dangerous. Right? And I think what gets me about, the, about his love for chocolate is that it's not even like, it's not even like the fancy stuff. It's just chocolate, right? Like this dude's favorite candy is M&M's. Am I lying? It's M&M's. Do you know what's special about M&M's? Nothing. They're literally just tiny pieces of plain milk chocolate. When he would travel doing missions, this man would take the biggest bag of M&Ms you've ever seen on his trip, be gone for like a week, and the bag was gone. It was a miracle. Or he just really loves chocolate. I remember one time getting to go with him. Me and my friend thought it would be funny. We were just bad. We thought it would be funny to like pour his jumbo bag of M&Ms out all over his bed under the covers, then cover it up. And then we waited outside his door to hear his reaction. And after like 20 minutes, we didn't hear anything. And I'm like, what is going on? And so we, 
Hello, hey, you in there? Yeah, come in. And we walk in, and this dude has just peeled the covers back and is just eating the M&Ms off the mattress. I mean, he loves chocolate. If you ask him about a favorite candy bar, he doesn't want Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. He wants the Hershey Squares. Just chocolate, right? If you ask him about what type of ice cream he's going to eat later, he's going to tell you plain chocolate. If you look at whatever he wore yesterday, I bet you there's a plain chocolate ice cream stain on his T-shirt. Oh, get on with it. Okay, all right. I've made the point. I've made the point. Okay. The point that I'm trying to make is that he doesn't want to dress it up. He doesn't want you to change the elements around it. You ask him what he wants, he wants chocolate. He doesn't want whipped cream. He doesn't want a nice little cherry on top. He doesn't want the peanut butter thrown in there like I do because that's a combination made from the heavens, right? He doesn't doesn't want any of that. What he'll tell you is that chocolate is sufficient on its own. It is sufficient. Here's the connection for you. What the Apostle Paul would have us believe is that the gospel of Jesus Christ on its own is sufficient. That the gospel that you have received, that the message that comes from Jesus that changed your entire life on its own is sufficient. There is no need to dress it up. There is no need to make it fancy with a cherry on top. There is no need to dress it with other elements around and present it humbly and hopefully acceptable to whatever audience you're trying to feed. The gospel in and of itself is sufficient. This is the problem that Paul is dealing with as he writes the letter of Colossians to a church in Colossae, a beautiful congregation of new believers of all types of backgrounds gathered in the city. But because there's all types of backgrounds and because Colossae is set up the way that it's set up, what they're experiencing is all types of cultural pressures that are beginning to influence the message of the gospel that they've already received. They're under all of, these, all of these other influences that aren't Jesus that are beginning to color the picture that they have of God, of the gospel, and of the church. I know that's incredibly unrelatable to us, but they're dealing with two major influences on opposite sides of the aisle. There's one influence culturally, of polytheism. Church, tell me that you're with me. Say polytheism. Polytheism. Now say it like you're going to tell me what it means. Polytheism. Polytheism is quite simply the belief in multiple gods. That's the best way I can summarize it, right? There's all types of different answers that your college professor will give you, but most simply, that's what it is. You observe multiple gods. Polytheism, right? There is a culture that many of the believers in the church of Colossae grew up with, that they observe many different gods. There's the God of war. There's the God of love. There's the God of you name it, and it's there, right? The God of sleep deprivation. 
the God of ADHD, the God of you name it, they got it. And as they come to faith and hear the message of Jesus, many of which are influenced to believe that Jesus is yet another God, right? Like, I believe that Jesus is a God, but he's one of the gods. And so I'll pray to Jesus, I'll observe the teachings of Jesus, but I will also observe the teachings of these other gods. And the problem with polytheism, because I know some of us might be thinking like, well, isn't it okay that they're like half right? And you the kids that ask for half credit on something that's three weeks late. I get it, right? That was me. That was me. It's okay. I'm just talking about me. I'm just talking about me. Don't, don't, don't. J-A-D-A at thirdstreetchurch.com for your angry emails. Um, But the problem with polytheism is that it takes away from Christ being supreme over all other beings in our life. Right? It takes away from this commandment that is, as far as we can tell, as old as time, where God says, have nothing else, no one else, not even another God that you think is a God before me. Put me first. And the idea of polytheism gets in the way of Jesus, who is God, being sufficient. It says, this is good for this part of my life. But for other parts of my life, I need other influences, right? The second issue that they're dealing with on the opposite side of the aisle is the Christians who grew up Jewish. The people that I would like to call the law-abiding Christians. Now, hear me out. When I say these are people who have a strict adherence to the law of Moses, all several hundred commands. These are the people who want to regulate what you eat on what days, what material your clothing is made out of, what you can and cannot say depending on the position of the moon in the sky and maybe what you have or haven't sacrificed to the Lord yet at the altar that is only receivable and acceptable by a certain person who's been cleansed, then there's, you, you get the picture, right? And the issue, although well-intended, amen, the issue with the law-abiding Christians is that it takes away from Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. It takes away from one of the things that Jesus himself said, which is, I'm not here to take away the law. I'm here to to fulfill it. In other words, there's no way that any of us are capable of fulfilling every expectation of the law, which is just our way of being like God, right? So Jesus comes and does it perfectly because at the end of the day, all of us are about to fall short anyway, right? And so this takes away from the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law so that we no longer have to be ruled by the guilt and shame of being under the law's thumb. Amen? And I think the hardest part of all in dealing with these influences on each side of these new believers is that everyone's argument, Paul says, sounds reasonable. All of us are easily able to identify somebody who's lost their ever-loving mind. 
you tell me that Jesus was a cat and nobody's listening to you, right? At least one person in here was like, you don't think he could be a cat though? No, I don't think he's a cat, right? That's crazy. But these people aren't making crazy arguments. They sound reasonable. Well, Jesus came and rescued from these things. Don't you think that he wants you to be a better person? Yes. Well, Jesus, Jesus did this. Don't you think he would? And that's the hardest part is that they're reasonable arguments. Now, these things, as I said them just now, in context of the first century, might not sound reasonable to us. I don't think most of us in here would say that we hold polytheistic views. I would say that most of us in here would probably commonly agree that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, right? And if you haven't made that step, stick around. I'm coming for you in a second. But, but if you have made that decision, then we can all agree Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And so we may reject the notion of there being multiple lives. Sorry, there being multiple gods, But, pragmatically, look at the way we live our lives. Right? Our thought, our words, may say Jesus is the Lord of all. But we prefer to get our financial advice from somewhere else. Right? We might say and really sing hard on Sunday that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is over all, but I prefer my political advice from the targeted videos on social media. We might say that Jesus is the only God that we follow, but does that really mean that I have to accept his teaching of relationships for me? Or can I maybe, maybe just find what fits best for my journey? Polytheism takes away from the idea that Christ is good enough for us. This pragmatic, that's what I want to call it, pragmatic polytheism. This, not necessarily saying it with our words, but showing it with our actions that we serve multiple things, takes away from the very testimony we try to utter that Christ is the only one. And then there's the law-abiding folk. Or can we, can we call it this this morning without me getting too many angry emails? The good old church folk. That got your attention. A few of you just woke up from the dead just now. He said, ooh, he's about to talk about my grandma. Don't you talk about my grandma. Listen, I'm talking about the people that was born and raised in the church, baptized out of the womb, right? Those who authored the phrase, this is one I heard. I, you might, I might be dating myself, but don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, Don't go with girls who do. Y'all never heard that, huh? 
The same people that would offer the argument that you're not really saved. You haven't really begun the process of sanctification if there is no evidence, not even any evidence. It's a particular piece of evidence from the Holy Spirit. It's the people who still want to regulate dress and food and observance on particular days. And it's, you know, it is what it is. But the point that I want to make is that all of us, to some extent, have been influenced by outside sources to see the gospel a certain way. Culture has found its way into our coloring or perception of the church, you know, believers. Now, I don't, I don't want you to come away with the idea that the Apostle Paul is being a hater, right? The Apostle Paul, he just don't want nobody to listen to anybody but him, Right? He's a control freak. That's why he wrote so much of the New Testament. He didn't trust anyone else, what anyone else would do or say, right? I don't want you to think that because that's not true. I don't don't want you to think that we're being haters by doing this series, right? That we're trying to be antagonistic towards other people's process. I don't want you to think that. But what I need us to understand This is important. What I need us to understand is that outside influence on the way we view the gospel is a legitimate strategy and tactic of the devil. And listen, I'm not going to be the person. Y'all know me. Some of you, most of you know me real well. You know I'm not the person that's going to sit up here and say everything is the devil. Some of it is our own personal feelings and laziness. Some of it is us not liking the way something is phrased or taught to me or us feeling guilt and shame. And so as a way of eradicating those things, we just tweak a few little words here and there so that it can fit our preference. But then a part of it is also the devil too. Right? Because he's going to allow these influences. Matter of fact, he's going to fan these influences into flame. If only he was in charge of our political systems or social media algorithms, and he'd be able to put it in front of us in every decision that we make. The devil wants to influence the way that you see the gospel. Right? Paul says in a different letter, that he sends with his disciple Timothy. He says that the time will come when people won't tolerate sound doctrine. Well, that's good teaching, but I don't like the way that it sounds, right? He says the time will come where according to their own desires, people will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Paul said that. I didn't say it. I mean, I repeated it. He said that the day is going to come where people are going to try to make this message about them. And that was 2,000 years ago. 
Imagine how much worse it's gotten. Right? See, the enemy wants to fill you with false hope. The devil's not against hope. Actually, he hopes you find it. But he hopes you find it in what he presents to you. Because he knows that if you find hope in what he's proposing to you, then when that ultimately proves to be empty, or he pulls it away because he can't, then you're crushed. But who do you blame? You blame God. You blame the church. Right? The devil wants to deceive you. He wants to give you the guise of a believer so that you can go in to the deepest parts of Christ's body and deceive and to fulfill his agenda from the inside. There's elsewhere in scripture that the people who who do this are called savage wolves. The type of wolf that would murder a sheep, then put on the sheepskin and go inside the pen. What the apostle Paul wants us to know is not that he's a hater or that he has all the best teaching, but that this is a legitimate problem that we're all susceptible to, that some people want to convolute and diminish the gospel. Thus, it's affecting our lives. Honestly, if I can go down a rabbit trail for just a second, this is my fear with deconstruction. Now, I'm not here to condemn deconstruction. I went through my own process, right? What I don't want to see us do is to get to the point of deconstruction where we start to take parts of our faith apart, parts of our theology apart, parts of God apart with no plan on how to get it back together, right? I was talking to, I was talking to Kenny earlier this week and the visual that came in our conversation was if you've driven your car for a while and after a while, after a lot of use, it starts to make a funny noise. What's advised is not you pulling into your driveway and taking apart your car to find the funny noise because unless you are, you're not a mechanic. So what you're going to do is you're going to take apart your car. You're not really going to know if you found the answer or not, but then you're going to have no wisdom or knowledge on putting it back together. And now nobody can park in your driveway. Nobody's coming over for dinner. Nope, and you're not going anywhere to spread the gospel because your car's in pieces because it was making a funny noise because it's got 478 million miles on it and you don't know why it's click clacking. I'm just saying it correlates. If, if you don't get it, pray that the Lord gives it to you on the way home. But my point is that the devil doesn't want you to receive Christ in the first place. But if and when you do, he's not going to stop and consider it a loss. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep trying to influence. 
right? He's going to find ways to get in front of you to get you to buy into false narratives about Christ. He wants you to find that teacher that will scratch your itching ear because he knows that that teacher's words are empty and he knows that you're going to follow it down a path of emptiness and destruction. He wants you to slow your development. He wants to weaken you so that any little storm that comes in your life will cause you to be tossed and turned right out of the faith. Church, there is no shame in being susceptible. We're all susceptible. We're all sheeps with Christ as our shepherd. Sheeps, sheep. But there needs to be an awareness. We need to be on alert. Now, Paul, good old Paul, man. I love the gospel globetrotter, man. He's crazy because he never kills you. He never, like, completely rips you apart without giving you encouragement on how to get back up. I love that. I can't say that I always do the same. But he does it really well. Because at the beginning, at the end, and in between all these statements, he says things like, in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, why are you looking for something else anyway? All of what you want to know, all the wisdom you need is in Jesus. All the knowledge that you hope to obtain is in Jesus. And whatever questions you have about God, God's answer is in the character and actions of Jesus. Paul says, continue to walk in him. Meaning, don't be in such a hurry to jump to all of these conclusions that you miss the journey that Christ has you on. Don't be like the little kid that's pulling their parent's hand in anticipation of what's ahead when he's trying to slow you down and show you what you need right here and for ahead. Continue to walk in him even when it's really, really hard. Because, guys, there's a lot of answers that I don't have. There's a lot of advice that I can't give you. There's a lot of wisdom that I don't have to offer through a microphone to your consuming ears on a Sunday. I don't have it. You don't have it. We have a lot of questions. And when things get really hard, some of the finest testing and the greatest character building is when we can't see the hope at the other end of what we're struggling with. But Paul says, continue to walk with him, which implies he's still there. He's right beside you. He's walking with you. And when you're weak, he'll carry you to see you walk again. Just keep walking. Paul says, be rooted and built up in him. Rooted. Meaning, Our lives are entrenched in Jesus. 
Meaning there is no separation of what is my church going soil, what is my financial soil, what is my relationship soil, what is my social life soil, what is my media presence soil, what is my occupational. There's no difference. It's all in one soil. It's all rooted in the teachings and the life of Jesus Christ. And so to allow that to be what builds you up, how many things outside of Christ do we let build us up? We just talked about this last week. Those false affirmations from the world, that little bit of extra cash, those likes on our page, those attaboys from somebody who don't even know Jesus, those worldly measures of success, we allow those to build us up, to puff us up, to give us a false sense of we're doing okay, when in all reality, our roots aren't going deep enough, and so we're actually wiltering. He says the entire fullness of God dwells within him. Everything that you could possibly need Every ounce of sustenance, every substantial thing that you could want is in God. And the fullness of who God is dwells in the person of Jesus. Then Paul gives just even more good news, as if we hadn't already received enough. He says, and maybe even better news, you've been filled by him. So there's a plot twist the one that we seek to follow, the one in whom God's presence was pleased to dwell, now chooses and is pleased to choose to dwell within us. I wasn't great at geometry, but I think I remember this thing called the transitive property that would then allow us to reasonably deduce that all God has for us the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found within the presence that dwells within us. Here it is. The gospel of Jesus is sufficient in all things. It can and ought to be used as the answer, the guiding principle, the end-all, be-all. It's sufficient. It's good enough on its own. It doesn't need to be dressed up. And so I think what Paul would have us do is to really, really know what Jesus said. Is to not only have received the gospel message of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, new life being found in him. Praise God but to really, really know what Jesus has said. Because the tip that I gave you a little while ago, and I'll keep giving it to you until I believe that you believe it, is that Jesus isn't going to tell you something now that he hasn't already said. If it's not found in Scripture, he didn't say it to you. Your feelings did. Right? Your influencer did. So if we're able to get deep into what what the things that Jesus has said, then we know his voice. 
I've used the analogy before. Sometimes when Sarah and Kaylee yell, and my oldest too, I can't always tell their voices apart, but based on the things that, I, that they say when they're yelling, I know which one it is. Right? When you know the things that Jesus has said, you're able to recognize his voice in your life. And then let him shape you. Let the spirit of God, let the presence that is pleased to dwell within you shape you. Shape the way you live your life. Shape the way you look at your money. Shape the way you look at your relationships. Shape the way that you see your job. So that way, when suffering does come, it's used for the betterment of your character and you don't run to whatever false theology you want to hear. Whatever thing makes it easier to deal with that pain. Everything you're looking for is already in him whose presence is within you. So get to know the way that he's designed you. Because that will further reveal to you the role that he sees you playing. Because some of you, like me, didn't hear it enough growing up, but you're being put in the game. You're being taken off the bench, whether you were put there because somebody told you you weren't good enough or because you self-selected out. God is trying to put you in. He's trying to get you moving. He sees you as an integral part of his strategy. So get to know the way he's designed you. Get to know the way the spirit gives you things that are life-giving and other things that make you want to go to bed afterwards. Because that will tell you the role that he sees you playing in his body. Let me say this last thing and then I'm out your way. Our city, our community, the way it is today is because of broken promises and empty deceit. Any brokenness, any bad thing you can identify about our community was built on broken promises and empty deceit. And you know the consequence of that? I was faced with it super recently. Our neighbors are tired of hearing promises. They're tired of hearing about the new things that are coming. Right? They're tired of listening to the latest proposal that's going to revitalize a neighborhood. Am I tripping? I'm not tripping, am I? It's your job to hear this stuff. Am I lying? Am I out of pocket? Our neighbors are tired of it because everything's a broken promise. Everything is empty, empty deceit, right? They're too tired. Our neighbors are too tired to look at any of these things with any type of hope. On the other side, on the other side, I'm seeing different organizations try and retry different ways of dressing up hope in order to attract our neighbors to something that actually just meets an agenda that they have or that they were given, right? A quota that they need to fill. Church, what I want you to hear is that what you have received in Jesus is sufficient. What you have 
is good enough for even the biggest problem in our community. Someone recently asked me, he said, I, I, I hope you don't mind me being so brash, which always means they're about to hurt your feelings. He said, but your facilities are not, let's just say they're not what other facilities are. Your operation and your budget is nowhere near what some of these other organizations in the city are doing. And yet, and yet your, your leagues, your programs, your offering for children are all full. So why are families and young men choosing to be at a lesser facility instead of nicer offerings. You know what I told him? Jesus. Because the difference between this gym and that gym is that what people meet and respond to when they come here is Jesus. It's the Christ within all these people that I'm looking at right now. It's the Jesus that's in you. Listen, we may not have all the courts that we want slash need. We may not have all the facilities and surely not the bathrooms. We don't have all the answers, all the services, and all the resources that other places have. But what we know, what we believe, what we share about Jesus has made us a big family. While y'all are on two-year cycles of reinventing yourselves. Christ is sufficient. Christ is good enough. My prayer is that we get to know Christ so deeply in this next season that we no longer feel the need to run from thing to thing to thing, looking for other satisfying answers for the immediate problem, for the immediate relief. My prayer is the deeper we get to know him this season, the stronger our faith is to see God do the seemingly impossible and to offer the same hope to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father God, we trust you. We believe you. And what you have done in and through Jesus is enough. And so, Lord, we want to live into that. We want to know what life is like walking intimately alongside Jesus. We want to see as natural byproduct of our relationship with you, the world yield to the kingdom. 
We want to see the miraculous moves of your Holy Spirit in our simple daily obedience. And so God, we pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we've been distracted. God, we pray that you would forgive us for allowing other influences to shape the way we see you, for allowing other influences to color our actions, to help us choose a preferred gospel as opposed to the sufficient gospel. And Lord, as we offer grace and mercy to our brothers and sisters who still fall into this trap, I pray that you give us the wisdom and knowledge we need to see this walk through. I pray that we would not be pulled in to fancy philosophies or empty deceit, but rather we would be delivered and become a light worth an entire neighborhood following. We pray these things in the name that makes it all possible, and that is Jesus. All who believe say, bless up.